This week I got to do something that has become one of my favorite new practices in ministry here. Twice a week, starting at the beginning of this month, I decided to open up my schedule a little bit for a twice-weekly lunch with Reverend Lee. Every Tuesday and every Thursday. I am an extrovert. I work in coffee shops anyway. So I figured, why not open this up for people to drop by? Anybody at all, anybody from Wellsprings, anybody beyond Wellsprings, they can sit with me. That's fine. From 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. On Tuesdays, I've been going to the Malvern Buttery in Malvern. And on Thursdays, I've been going to the farmhouse in Downingtown. This past Thursday, though, when I pulled into the parking lot at the farmhouse, I still don't know why. I don't know what was going on, but it was packed. It was full with more people than I'd ever seen before, and the parking lot actually was full. There were no spaces. I was already running a little late. So I thought to myself, "Eh, I'm going to have to park on the street somewhere. I'm going to have to walk kind of hot. Even though it's September, it's still hot, right? And then I noticed as I was circling that another car had um, used sort of a creative parking method, let's call it. You know, they found a little spot between like a dumpster and another car that wasn't technically marked but seemed fine. I figured these farmhouse people seem like nice people. I bet I could do that too. So I made another loop and I found a little spot in a corner, a spot that worked just fine for me to get in and out. And I went inside, I got my coffee, I got a scone, I sat down. Two of our folks ended up dropping by on Thursday, Linda Peduto and Kimberly McGarvey. Both came through while I was there for a snack and we chatted for a while. And so a little after one o'clock, I realized I needed to get going to get to my next meeting. I was feeling really good. I had that energized, happy feeling, right? I was really glad to have connected with some congregants, I'd heard a little bit about what was going on in their lives. I was so glad that, yeah, like I'm making this space for people to just take a break from their day and be together, be with me, be with each other. This is what church is about, right? I was really flying high. I packed up my bag and I headed out to my car. And as I approached it, I noticed that there was a little piece of paper tucked under my wiper blade. And it wasn't a ticket just looked like a folded up note. And this is what it said. Thanks for being so selfish and lazy. You had to park me in where there isn't a spot. I almost had to call a tow truck to move you. Yeah. So I want you to know this note didn't ruin my day. First of all, I live in South Philly. I have had much worse notes left on my car. And for less, trust me. I I also want you to know, I did double-check to make sure it wasn't Linda or Kimberly who left this note, because then this would be really awkward right now. It wasn't. I wasn't really mad in the moment. I'm not mad now. I wasn't particularly upset. I honestly felt more sad. I totally understand being angry and frustrated by this. Trust me, again, I live in South Philly. This specific form of anger, of being hemmed into a hard parking space, I have an intimate familiarity with that feeling of frustration. But the note made me sad because it it wasn't a communication that was going to help anything. It was just angry and mean. And there were so many other ways we could have dealt with this that would have actually helped. 
The farmhouse is one big open room and everybody in that parking lot was sitting inside. This person could have come in and said, hey, who has the blue Honda Civic outside? Could you move your car? They could have gone around quietly and asked a few tables if they were shy. If they were really shy, they could have gone to the person at the counter and asked them to make an announcement, right? We had some other options. And yes, I understand that all of that is an inconvenience to that person. But those options would also have been a lot more human. If we'd had an interaction, I bet this person would not have called me selfish and lazy to my face. If we'd had an interaction, I would have apologized sheepishly. I knew what I did for making their day a little bit harder. Maybe we might have even had a nice conversation. It just didn't have to be this way. And that's something I find myself saying a lot these days. All around us, it seems like conflicts are getting harsher. Criticisms are getting meaner. Hearts are hardening and self-protecting. And again, for me, I'm less interested in figuring out who's to blame for this. I'm less interested in blaming the internet or politics or any one thing, right? We, we all know that nasty notes on car windshields existed before Facebook. What I'm interested in is how we can turn things around from where we are now. In our own lives and in our communities, in our country, and in our world. In this message series, this fall, me and we, us and them. We are trying to ask these questions, to hold a little bit closer to our hearts the ways that we can stay connected and think a little bit more about me and we, rather than disconnecting and thinking about only us and them. It's a subject that we are talking about this fall because it keeps coming up. It has come up so many times in my conversations with all of you, and I know with your conversations with each other, especially these past few years. It has been really challenging to think of our world, our country, even some of our smaller, closer communities as a part of this one big we that our faith tells us that we are. This we every member of which is worthy of love, this we that is all part of a common human family. It's disconcerting for us, right? Unitarian Universalists don't agree on a lot, but that's that's kind of our thing, right? All are worthy of love, and we are all in this together. And it shakes our faith when we don't feel that sense of connection to each other so easily. It's a big topic, and I'm glad that Ken and I still have another month of messages to go in October to try to unravel some of this for us. But when I thought about where I wanted to start with my message this week on this bigger subject, just like with that angry note, I realized I didn't want to do too much describing or analyzing of where we are or how we got here or even who's to blame. I wanted to explore how we might turn things around to look at ways that we might invite people to join us rather than throwing up walls when we encounter conflicts or problems or differences between us. And so it's actually the organizers in my life 
who have taught me a lot about this. And I don't mean the Marie Kondo organizers. I mean friends of mine who are organizers for change, who organize people into rallies or actions or strikes, whether they do it for work as a community organizer, working for a union, or whether they just do it for free because they believe that power is created when people are brought together to make something change. I've learned from my organizer friends that an organizer might be a vegan. He might have never touched a gun in his life and he has no interest in doing so. But when he is working to protect natural lands or forests, he will say, join me to the local hunters association because they have something in common. I've learned from the organizers in my life that an organizer might be raising three kids with her wife at home. And on a Sunday morning, she would not be caught dead setting foot in a church that didn't honor her family and her relationship fully. But when she is working to raise the local minimum wage, she will say, join me to the immigrant house cleaners at the local Catholic parish. For my friends who organize, this isn't about compromising their beliefs. Far from it. It's actually about a strategy that they believe in. That when we build relationships with each other, when we get to know each other, not just as someone on the other side of an issue, but as a person who has something in common with us, we have a better chance of seeing each other as fully human of learning to care about the things that affect people differently than they affect ourselves. We have a better chance, and it's a long game, certainly, that they are playing. Right? It's not about winning just one debate or one election or even getting one new law on the books. They believe that real power that lasts is built through relationships, bringing more and more of us into this one big we, this one relationship that helps us all grow and change because when we learn about each other's experiences and we stick together, then we have had that experience of standing shoulder to shoulder for something we care about. And in doing so, we've had a chance to see and get to know each other as human beings. This kind of invitation to ask folks to join with us it is a stark contrast to what we are seeing more and more of these days. Something anthropologists are starting to call war speak. A professor named Robert Myers wrote about this in the Navy Times back in August, right after the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton. He said, for decades, we've been fighting metaphorical wars in America. Wars on heart disease, Wars on drugs, wars on poverty, smoking, illiteracy. And then he says there have now become these culture wars, right? Wars on Christmas, wars on reproductive rights, on bathrooms. War, he says, targets an enemy, someone or something to be defeated with whatever means are necessary. And it's one thing when you're at war with a disease. 
It's entirely another thing when you're at war with people. He argues that the more we hear war speak, the more we are conditioned to it and hardened to it, and we don't think twice about it, right? We use it all the time. We pull the trigger on a decision. We drop a bomb in conversation. We talk about invasions of immigrants and battles for the soul of our country. We do it in part because it's very effective. It grabs our attention so well, it hijacks our limbic system, right? It communicates somewhere inside of us that there's a threat and it confuses us. It fogs up our ability to determine if something is really an emergency or not. We hear those words and we think, wow, this is urgent. Instantaneous action is required. Everything is at stake. And we do have urgent problems before us. Last Friday's climate strike was just one example, right, of folks trying to bring our attention to a problem that is vital for us to solve. But when war speak floods the conversation with all of these urgent problems, we sometimes end up feeling like soldiers in the middle of some kind of bizarre nightmare, right? We are primed and ready for battle, but we don't have directions to the battlefield. We show up, but we haven't been trained We don't know whether to use a bayonet or an aircraft carrier for this particular fight. There's no uh, one general to lead us. We have been ratcheted up emotionally around so many issues, but without a way to organize that brings us all together, we just flail in stress and fear and frustration. Dr. Myers says in his article, we are all in the trenches now. And he doesn't think that's a good thing. A few years ago, I led a springboard, one of our small groups for spiritual growth here at Wellsprings called Fighting Well. It was a group about conflict where we were exploring how it operates and how we can operate in the midst of it. And conflict is something that's uncomfortable sometimes to talk about, sometimes to be in. But it is always present in our lives, right? Because it's just what happens when people who are different in some way try to coexist. Just like Frank said last week, we have a lot in common, but we are all a little bit different. Our experiences, our talents, our preferences, our opinions... And those differences, I believe, make us better at the end of the day. If we can work with them, then we can learn from each other, and we create something as a whole that is much greater than the sum of its parts when we collaborate. But when we find ourselves getting into conflict, we can go in the other direction. In the springboard, we talked about a man named Dr. Friedrich Glassel. He's a researcher who grew up in Austria in the 1940s in the shadow of World War II. And with that life experience, plus a lifetime of study, he's become one of the world's leading experts on conflict escalation, on what happens that makes conflict get worse over time. He identified these nine stages of conflict, how they escalate all the way over here from some tension and maybe a little bit of debate to destruction, total annihilation, and stage nine is cheerfully called together into the abyss. 
He breaks up these categories also into how they can be resolved. If you find yourself in a conflict stage in the left side here, you can still resolve it as a win-win situation. You can still come to realize that your different perspectives might make a better solution in the end, that you're better together. But if you can't, you move through a win-lose solution to a lose-lose solution. And think about it. This is what war is over here, a lose-lose prospect. When we go to war, we are basically accepting, you know what, it's worth it for us to lose a little bit for them to lose more. It's worth it for us to lose some of our soldiers, some of our people, some of our money, some of our land maybe, so that they have it worse off. Now we can think of this in grand cosmic terms, but how many of you are thinking about your divorce? (laughs) Maybe a custody battle, a conflict at work, with the PTA. These stages can happen when we have a lot at stake, a little at stake, or somewhere in between. However we practice them in small ways tends to be how things play out in big ways. And it is war speak, in part, that language that gets us thinking like the people over here where only lose-lose solutions are possible. The middle stage of conflict, though, where win-lose solutions are possible, that is how a lot of our world operates already. In a lot of places in our world, that is good enough. That is the norm. We have winners and losers. One side gets their way, and the other side is worse off. Maybe they are embarrassed, threatened, maybe even hurt. Now, when the stakes are low... Like in the, you know, the football playoffs. I'm sorry for saying the stakes are low there for any of you who disagree with me. Maybe that's okay to have winners and losers. But when the stakes are high, when an ex-con can't find work because of employment discrimination and loses opportunity, when a cancer patient can't afford her treatment because the party that would have covered her lost the election, Suddenly accepting that there are winners and losers in this world doesn't seem so great. And it doesn't feel acceptable, especially, I think, to us. You see, the pesky thing about our faith is that we have this sense of calling that something else out there is possible. Like Kathy mentioned before, our vision, right? Here at Wellsprings, we are called to make the world whole. And if we are making the world whole, we're not talking about defeating anybody. Our whole faith comes from this original idea that we refuse to draw a line that says you are in and you are out. It's not the right set of beliefs or behaviors that wins you a spot in the good place, whether after death or on this earth. A loss on the playing field of human worthiness is not acceptable for us. It's just not who we are. We want to shoot for the win-win. Pardon the metaphor. The stage of conflict that Dr. Glassell identifies. The stage of conflict that traps us. That is that turning point from win-win to win-lose. 
He says it happens when we stop attacking the problem together with our different points of view and we start attacking each other. The issue at hand begins to get confused with the people involved. The war on drugs becomes a war on addicts. The war on poverty becomes a war on poor people in my neighborhood or in my kid's school. The war on crime becomes a war on communities of color. And yes, the war on racist, nativist, misogynistic American policy becomes a war on Trump voters. Now, those problems, drugs and poverty and crime and racism and nativism and misogyny, I want to invite as many people as I can to join me in the fight against those problems. But when I turn the people into problems, I am starting down a dangerous path. So instead of war speak, I wonder what might happen if we started thinking about and practicing join speak. Invitations. Join speak might say to someone, you know, I used to think the same way about that, but then I met my friend Bill or Amir or Marisol or Cade. Let me tell you about them. Join speak might say, I'm reading this book about this new issue and I would love to have somebody to discuss it with. Join speak might invite a neighbor to a rally for a different political party so that you can talk about it afterwards. Join speak might say, okay, that joke that you and I just heard very differently, let me tell you what that was like for me. Join speak makes an assertion, not a concession. It asks other people to join us in our stories to join us in our lives so that together we can start to look at the real problems, not at each other as problems. And, you know, depending on the circumstance, it might feel really generous, and we might not quite be ready to do that. It might feel really hard. We won't always be in the mood. We may not want to do it with a particular person, and we can set our boundaries around that. No one of us can do it all. But that kind of generosity and invitation, it is part of our calling. It is part of what our faith asks us to do, to try and find the ways that we can make this world more whole. In an article for the online magazine, The Salve, I read a story earlier this year of these two women behind me. On the left is a woman named Trista Easel. Trista is a writer and a graduate student in California. On the left, some of you might actually recognize this woman. Her name is Jennifer Knapp. She is a former Christian music artist who came out as gay about a decade ago in 2010. Trista was raised in a conservative evangelical family. But as she grew up, she started to realize she was different than them. And for her, she wasn't gay. It wasn't about identity. 
she just didn't see the world the same way that her family did. Her article is called How to Maintain Relationships When Your Beliefs Change. It is one of the articles on that sheet from the Spiritual Development Ministry that you can pick up. And Trista has a really beautiful way of writing about what it means and what it feels like to be right in the thick of this. She has not figured it all out. But she refuses to let go completely of her relationships and to turn her family and her friends into the problem. She is resisting that urge really hard and fighting a very difficult fight to figure out how she can continue to love and be loved by them while also refusing to dim her own light, not to shrink or hide her real beliefs just for the sake of getting along. Trista reached out to Jennifer, a musician that she admired as a child because she knew that she'd gone through a similar kind of journey. After Jennifer came out as gay, she lost so many of her friendships and pretty much her entire community in the Christian music world. And their conversation is so lovely and so honest about the vulnerability and the risk in engaging with folks who disagree with you about the really big stuff. Jennifer, at one point, says basically, you know, how many people assume that they know the story, the whole story, about people like us and our lives, and therefore try to think for us? rather than have a meaningful conversation with us. In the article, Trista looks back at what has happened in her life as she's tried to bridge those distances between herself and her more conservative family. And she acknowledges there are only a handful of relationships that have lasted these last few years. But those ones are so precious to me now. They are so much better than they would have been if I'd stayed quiet, if I had not shown up as who I was. And they give me hope that there can be people who still love you and want to be in your life when you are different and when you change. In the end, she said it's something Jennifer said that still guides her. A little piece of advice she gave her. Be courageous enough to invite people to join you as you evolve. We all have only so much energy to give to this world. And when we are tempted to spend it dropping bombs, maybe our vision here can remind us of another choice. The choice to invest that same precious time and energy into some kind of practice of joining together to find our own ways to offer the relentless grace of an open invitation. For these, (laughs) amen, and may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of our hearts, presence and power that we see in the sun and the sky, in the dirt below our feet, the seeds that sprout, the mystery of the changing of the seasons of this earth that holds us all. May we trust that the many visions of who and what you might be are meant to be as unique to us as our fingerprints. 
May we trust that each of us has something unique and beautiful to offer to this world. And that even when our unique fingerprint is not received well, that that has nothing to do with us. That we are meant to show up and to share our lives with each other. May we all be met with some grace and some love as we show up in this world. For these prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers that each of these people carries on their hearts, we say amen.